Hello, Renoites listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. My name is Connor McQuivy. I'm your host, as always. Thank you so much for checking out the show this week. Renoites is the podcast where I talk to interesting and important people from in and around Reno, Nevada, the biggest little city in the world, the best little city in the world, I think. Very excited today on the episode to have Dr. Bio Curry Winchell, Dr. BCW, as she is also known. Dr. Curry Winchell is the medical director of St. Mary's Urgent Care and Carbon Health. We had a great conversation about racial disparities in medical treatment, about trust in the medical system, about vaccinations and COVID, about representation, all kinds of really, really good stuff in this conversation. And I was so grateful that she was able to come on the show. She's been a real asset during the COVID pandemic for our city and also nationally. Before we get into this week's interview, I'd like to take a moment to share with you one of my goals for this show. I've been doing this podcast for about a year and a half now. I've had over 50 episodes. I've been so proud of the level of guests that we've had, the quality of conversations. And one thing I'm trying to do with this current season, we're just kind of in the beginning of season four, is use it as an opportunity to try to gain a little bit more financial support for the show. I haven't had any paid sponsors. I know a lot of podcasts have a lot of ads. I'm trying to avoid that if I can. And one of my hopes is that this can be a listener-supported podcast. There's a couple ways that you can help support the show financially. If you'd like to donate monthly, I have an account on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash renoites. There, you can sign up for several different levels, as little as three bucks a month. I call that one the tip jar. If you would throw a dollar in a tip jar, then I hope that you would sign up there. If you follow me on social media, if you're any kind of regular fan of the show, that really does add up and make a huge difference to help me cover some of the costs of creating this podcast. Also, if you don't want to sign up for anything recurring and you just want to shoot me a couple bucks on Venmo, that is a great way for you to tell me, hey, you're doing a great job, Connor, keep it up. I really appreciate that. So feel free to shoot me a little tip on Venmo or head to patreon.com slash renoites. Also on the Patreon, there are perks for certain levels, depending on how much you want to donate things like stickers, shout outs on the show. So please check that out if you are interested in helping the show continue to exist. Patreon.com slash renoites. I do have a couple patrons that I would love to thank personally. That's Vicky Musney from DJ Trivia. Abby Whitaker from the Abby Agency, and Mike Van Houten from Downtown Makeover, all excellent supporters of the show who I am so, 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 so grateful for. If you have any guest suggestions, any ideas for episodes, any kind of feedback, you just want to get in touch, feel free to shoot me an email. My address is Connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renoids.com. And now, this week's guest, Dr. Bio Curry Winchell. Dr. Bio Curry Winchell, Dr. BCW, welcome to Renoites. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Connor, for having me. I am excited about this opportunity to discuss and and just have a conversation. Yeah, I, I'm glad that we're doing this episode because I know that it's a big topic for you. It's something that you care a lot about. And I've seen you in the news a lot recently with a lot of public health issues. And I like to give opportunity for people to talk a little more in depth. And you have a lot to say about kind of what is going on in our medical community, specifically around stuff like diversity and inclusion and disparate impacts on people of color. But I want to start just by a little bit of background uh, for you, for people who don't know anything about you. You're the medical director for St. Mary's Urgent Care, which gives you a good opportunity to speak to a lot of these issues from a, you know, a high level of experience and authority. Can you just start by telling me a little bit about what you do in that role and what was what's the process been like to get there? 
Yes. Um, So I have had a very eclectic type of medical career, and it's been so amazing where I have not really fit the traditional journey. I've had all of these opportunities to deliver healthcare in a different way. And so as you mentioned, um, I'm the medical director of St. Mary's Urgent Care, as well as Carbon Health, and I work at the Community Advocacy Center. So I have the opportunity not only to work as a physician and see patients, but I get to help with administration and different policies and initiatives, as well as health literacy. And so that has really allowed me to raise awareness for inequities and disparities. And so how that all came about, um, I have always loved finding ways to help. And in healthcare, there are so many different things that we need to take a second look at or make a change in some sort of way. Through joining St. Mary's and Carbon Health and the county, I've had this opportunity to deliver care, what I like to call beyond clinical walls. And that is realizing that healthcare is moving, it's shaping, and that is through different mediums. And so I have just really enjoyed my opportunity to be with these wonderful healthcare systems in Northern Nevada and find a way to raise awareness nationwide and locally just to help my community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, this idea of outside of the clinic walls, I think is really important because a lot of public health outcomes, uh, like you mentioned, is education, it's informing people. And a lot of times people don't get their medical information when they're in the doctor's office, they're getting that through the media, they're getting that through what they're reading, they're getting that through conversations with friends. So have you found that being in the position you are now where you're doing more outreach and more advocacy and more education outside of just the four walls? Is that something that you were naturally drawn to or that you had an intention of doing as you kind of grew in the in the medical field? Is that always been part of your thinking about wellness and health? So it, I think it's always been a part of me <laughs> where I've always tried to ask questions of why are we doing that? Is it helpful? And how can we make a difference when we look at certain inequities and disparities that are happening? And so through that, while I was in medical school and residency, and even I'll take a step back, people are, are often surprised and don't know that before I became a doctor, I was actually a PA, a physician assistant for three years. And so this journey that I've had through healthcare as a PA, as a physician, and even as before I even started all this as a CNA, as a assistant, has really helped me shape my career of understanding how so many different parts of the healthcare system really need to communicate with each other. If we want to really have different things changed as well as find ways to help people get the help they need where they are. And I think that's a part of healthcare that we have to lean into. So I think it was always been a part of me. And just through this journey of giving back and philanthropy and advocacy, I have just been able to push that needle and um, find different ways to deliver care. Because I truly believe that whether it's acute, preventative, or chronic, you can deliver healthcare through different ways. And for me, that means 
of course, seeing patients, but also being in different communities that are underserved, marginalized communities, talking to diverse populations, as well as writing and finding a way to deliver health information that is digestible and informative, but not in a way where people feel like, I'm saying you have to do this. It's It should never be about changing people's minds. It should be about giving the information so they can make the best decision for themselves and their family. And so through writing, and then now I've been able to do local and national television, it's been such an amazing opportunity to just deliver care in this fashion. And um, I am enjoying it and uh, I'm going to keep moving. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's great. That's interesting, the difference between kind of the education and persuasion, because I think a lot of times when we think about health outcomes or getting people to have better healthy practices or things along those lines, a lot of times the idea is you have to make people do the thing. You have to make people go get the vaccine. You have to convince people that this is the right thing to do. And that doesn't always work. I think sometimes people don't like to be pushed into something. They like to you know, have the tools and resources and then feel like they have brought themselves to where they're at. Can you talk a little bit more about that kind of difference between the education and the persuasion and why you think that the approach that you take is a, an effective one? It allows people to, number one, feel a part of it. And I think that's something that we have to look at when we talk about healthcare. Yes, as physicians and healthcare providers, we have knowledge, but it's not helpful if we can't deliver it in a way that the patient even understands. And so that's why I lean into having that informed decision. And another piece that I've really utilized is trusted messengers. And I'll give a great example. When COVID, when the pandemic started, um, I thought, what can I do to share this information? And I intentionally say share because again, it's not about forcing information and so forth. And so I realized, you know, a lot of people really uh, trust, of course, their pastors, their priests. And I thought, why not have the opportunity for those officiants or pastors and priests to hear the health information about COVID? And so uh, myself and a couple of other doctors were able to share this information with several pastors and priests in Northern Nevada. That in turn led to the delivery of that information to their congregation, which in turn led to an invitation for us to speak to their congregation. And then we had an outreach clinic shortly after. And that kind of cadence and mix of access, trust, and literacy, I think can happen with anything. It doesn't just have to be with COVID-19. It can happen with any sort of disease. And so those are ways that I feel are so important when it comes to delivering healthcare information. And another piece that I wanted to kind of figure out how I could also broaden that reach. When we did our outreach clinics, I saw a need for people to be able to just walk up. You didn't have to have a car. I wanted people mm -hmm. to be able to, you know, whatever modes of transportation, bike, walking, and so forth, go ahead and, you know, come and you're welcome to come. But the other part I pushed a little bit farther was you could actually just walk up and ask questions. There was no feeling that you had to get vaccinated or that you had to get tested. You could just mm. come and just ask. And I think that, again, you know, really 
leans into having the opportunity to diversify how we deliver healthcare. And that's something that just is needed throughout. And I, and I, I really enjoy it. Yeah, I think that like that fear and anxiety around healthcare decisions, it's something that I experience even as a, you know, person who has insurance and access to healthcare. I think a lot of people my age, I'm like an elder millennial, have <laughs> struggles with dealing with bureaucratic systems or things that we're not aware of or like that we're not that familiar with. So like access isn't just that it is available, but that it's kind of like friendly or user friendly or welcoming. Is that a big part of what you're talking about of like not just having the resources, but having like the environment or the like for lack of a better word, like the the vibe of a comfortable, safe place to go learn about healthcare issues and that kind of thing? It is. You know, having access, but making sure that uh, location is warm, friendly, um, welcoming is so important. And the other part is, you know, finding ways to give information about that location, that clinic. And because yes, you can have a location, a clinic available, but if you haven't invested in that community or literacy for the patients to understand why they should even go, then you're not helping. And, you know, another thing that I, I, I like to talk about is if you can lift the curtain of this kind of division that we have when it comes to screenings and, and different types of care that we want to deliver that's another way that you can increase access to your patients. So for an example, you know, last year um, during Breast Cancer Month, I thought, what can I do to raise awareness, connect with my patients on a deeper level and kind of find a way to shine a light on what is a mammogram? Because you, you hear about women, you know, afraid of the machines or not knowing what that involves. And so what did I do? I decided to go ahead and record myself getting one. And the reason why I did it, Connor, was to find a way to lift that kind of mistrust or concern or just not knowing and find yeah. a way to provide optics into this is what it's about. And so I did that and I went through all of the process while sprinkling in risk factors, especially for women of color and, and helping them kind of see why it's beneficial, but also maybe having those takeaways to share with other women. So even if they felt like I, they didn't want to, maybe mm -hmm. they would share this information with someone else. So that kind of form of health literacy could breathe and, and live in different pockets throughout our community. And then I took it one step further. So when I did the mammogram, I ended up getting an abnormal result. And I reflected on how many of my patients have said, Dr. BCW, I did my mammogram. I have to get a diagnostic. I don't want to. I'm afraid. I don't know what this means, or I'd rather not know. And I had those same feelings and a level of compassion and understanding that I had never had in this space. And so I re went back and I recorded a diagnostic. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> this is an opportunity to help people, <laughs> you know? And, and there's a part where you wait in a room to get your results. And I wanted people to see that and see kind of the thoughts that I was going through as a woman of color, as a physician. So I, I recorded that whole piece and got my results live. And through that, 
I we now have a form of health literacy and prevention um, measures that lives within the community for women to see. And that shows it doesn't need to be a pamphlet. It doesn't need to be mm-hmm. the traditional in the clinic kind of offering or um, awareness. It can live in different ways. And through that, it got picked up by different uh, national networks. And I was able to kind of amplify it even more. So those are the things that I um, I feel all of us can do. It doesn't have to be in healthcare. It can be in any space. You got to just shake it up a little bit and find different ways to deliver information. Yeah. And I think that's great. The creativity and like thinking outside the box about how we share information is really important, especially, you know, it's a modern and very rapidly changing world and media space and communication systems. And we need to be able to adapt with the times, right? People get their information in different ways and you need to meet them where they're at. So I'm glad to hear that that is a big priority for you to understand that the way we communicate doesn't have to be the way that we always have, right? If, if everything's changing, we need to change along with it a little bit. I know a big part of your priorities and your focus, it's, it's diversity and inclusion and these disparate impacts. Is that something that's always been a focus through your career? Or there's obviously much more awareness right now around racial issues generally, including in medicine. Uh, is that something that you've seen in yourself kind of change and grow with the times? Or is it something that when you got into medicine in the first place, you knew was a big priority for you? What has that kind of path been like for that focus in particular? It's always been a part of me. <laughs> and so when I, um, even before healthcare, I grew up in an environment that I like to talk about my dad, my 99-year-old World War II Korean and Vietnam War veteran dad. And um, I grew up knowing that the world is bigger than myself. And what can I do each day to give back? And so that has been a part of my makeup for my entire life. And when I um, decided to go to PA school and medical school, I found that love and that drive and desire into healthcare of asking, why is this happening? Or why do we have medically racially based algorithms? Why is it that a certain race is disproportionately dying from preventable diseases? And so this was something that I continued to question and figure out how could I possibly make a change in that space? Even if it was a tiny little change, I was all in. And um, so I've just been doing this for my entire career, but just in different ways. And a couple of years ago, I did a rally in Reno, and I, it was White Coats for Black Lives. And I like to share how that came about. So I knew nationwide that people were getting together to raise awareness for inequities and disparities and also honor George Floyd. And I didn't see anything happening in Reno. So I said, okay, I'm just going to do this. <laughs> and so I reached out to um, Oscar Delegato. I remember texting him the day before I did this event. And I said, do I need a permit? Do I need something? He's like, nope, but I'll just help you. Tell me where you want to do it. And I told him. And so we just started texting and just emailing. And I put things on Facebook and just tried to get you know people engaged and excited about it and said, just come and meet me. And I had no idea, Connor, if anybody was going to show up. <laughs> um, but it didn't matter because it was still about doing something. And even if it was going to be myself and maybe a couple of people, 
we did something and we, we took effort behind this thought and drive and wanting to raise awareness. And it turned out beautifully. I'm so grateful for this community that came out and supported this event. And so that's just one of many things that I tend to think of where I'm like, hmm, what can I do to find ways to communicate about this inequity and disparity? Yeah, I think that having that kind of solution-oriented mindset, we talked a little bit about this earlier of not just talking about what the problems are, but what are the actions that we can take? And if the problem is a lack of information, how do we inform people? Whatever the problem is, trying to reframe it in like, well, what can we do? I think is a very more productive way of looking at all these issues rather than just kind of like wallowing in the, the, the badness of some things without any idea of like, how can we make it better? So let's get into some of these issues, like the disparities that you mentioned, the different outcomes for different races. There's two kind of issues that I'm curious about. There's the different health outcomes for people of different races and what some of the roots are of that. And then the other issue that I want to talk to you about is representation and diversity in the medical field. So actual people of color working in medicine and how those two things tie together. So to start with some of the like the current issues what are some of the things that modern medicine gets wrong about how to treat people of different races? Assuming that people have access to medical care, where are doctors themselves, you think, failing their patients of color? Or what information do they have wrong? Or what bad practices are still kind of lingering from previous times? So I like to take it into the healthcare system as a whole. And so when you look at the infrastructure, there are so many different parts that are failing patients. And so it's not just the providers, because I would say a lot of the providers just don't know, and they're leaning into what they were taught before. And so that's just something that they continue to do. The goal is to educate in hopes that they can rethink about this practice, but how do you do that? You really have to inform and share why these practices are hurting your patients. And so some of the examples that I like to talk about is number one, medically racially based algorithms. One that is at the forefront of many is when we look at glomerular filtration rate, the GFR. This is a laboratory study that looks at kidney status and it shares you know, how healthy are your kidneys? The problem is there's a differentiator based on race. For myself versus you, and we both go in and get our blood drawn, my kidneys would be considered healthier than your kidneys just because I'm black. And why is that a problem? The concern is if I actually do have kidney disease and I need medication or I need to be on the kidney transplant list, I won't be on that list as soon as you will. Mm. And it's only because of my race. When we look at kidney disease, hypertension, all of these things, it's really interesting when you look at it from a whole perspective. So we know Black people are dying at a disproportionately rate or have a higher rate of diagnosis of kidney disease. But from the start, when you're looking at my kidneys, I'm already at a disadvantage because of my race. That is something we have to remove. We have to look at how that is affecting people. It's affecting their lives every day, where if they could have been on the kidney transplant list a couple of years sooner, but they weren't because they're black, but if they would have been marked as white, 
they could have, or, you know, some other race. And so that's a piece that I like to continue to discuss. Another thing is currently we have specific medications. Um, one I'll talk about for hypertension, that if you are black or identify as African-American, that we give you a specific medication based on your race for hypertension. And I pause there, Connor, because again, why are we doing that when anatomically I like to talk about my kidneys and your kidneys are exactly the same? And race is a social construct. It's not biological. So to give a medication based on someone's race is already, again, putting them at a disadvantage when maybe another medication could actually be a better fit. But then you have, you know, providers giving this medication because you're black when another medication could have been a better fit. And then six months from now, a couple of years from now, we find out that that wasn't the right medicine. How could that have affected their health outcomes? Mm -hmm. And this is not something new. When you look at other algorithms that have affected African-Americans, there is a algorithm that is no longer in practice, it was recently removed, was called the vaginal birth after C-section. And so what is that? It's a marker that stated that if you were black versus white, you were least likely to be successful to have a vaginal birth after you had a C-section. And it was only based on race. We look at black American women are dying at a disproportionately rate from pregnancy and birth outcomes. And you put into play a C-section, which has a higher risk, and you're not afforded the opportunity to have a vaginal birth because of your race, and you're considered not as successful, how does that feed into this disproportionately, you know, uh, impact that we see for races. And so that's just some of the examples that I really like to bring awareness to and how they affect health outcomes every single day. Yeah. I'm curious about the history of some of these things and kind of, I assume everyone has positive intent in all of these ideas of how we treat people. I don't think that doctors are actively trying to harm their black patients. No. So what's kind of the historical <laughs> background on this? Like why why were these thought to be good ideas or where did this race-based approach begin in the medical world? Has that has that been something that was seen as the right way to do things? What kind of doctors were introducing or promoting that kind of thinking? Um, what's kind of been the historical trend on those things? So there's a, you know, historical context to it. When we look at clinical trials, when we look at how we shape um, health information as far as best practices, it has been kind of shifted towards race base. And so when you look at the GFR, the reason why they decided to um, implement this was there was this thought with some of the studies that Black people had a higher level of creatinine. And so therefore their kidneys were considered healthier. But that factor can vary depending upon your age, your race, underlying health conditions, other factors. And so that wasn't excluded. It was just based on race. And so that has allowed this practice to continue on. 
And, you know, recently in 2021, the National Kidney Association has, you know, acknowledged that this practice is hurtful and they say they are working towards removing it, but it's still in play. And that will answer your question when you say, you know, why is this continuing to happen? And, you know, there are those uh, providers who continue to just kind of, okay, this is what I was taught. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm just going to keep doing it Mm -hmm. versus taking a step back and thinking, well, why am I doing this? And that has been a way that I have tried to inform providers. And again, it's never a blame game. It's what can I do to share new studies that show we shouldn't be practicing race-based medicine? And I try to do that through conversations, just informing in a way that is not judgmental, but in a way of, let me share this information and let me talk about how this impacts the patients you see every single day. I think that part is um, you know, really helpful in hopes that we can start to stop these these practices that are happening. But it's going to take an investment nationwide and internationally for people to kind of think about what we've done in the past and should we be doing it now? And if you really feel that we should, find justification that is current and something that you can really hang your hat on that this is what you should be doing. Because currently there's so many practices right now that are hurting patients every single day. Another example that I have heard of is whether symptoms are taken seriously or not. I've heard very often that doctors have had this idea in the past that black people have a different pain tolerance. So then you'll have patients who come in complaining of pain and the doctor will not take it as seriously or something along those lines, right? And that to me seems just obviously wrong on its face. (laughs) Like that doesn't even make sense. So how much of these things are really rooted in ignorance of the realities of, you know, the commonalities of all human beings, right? Like why are there doctors who buy into effectively racist ideas about their patients and let that affect the way that they treat their patients? So I always like to start with, I don't believe that the majority of doctors are, you know, they're not racist. There is this level of unconscious bias and we all have it. And I think that's important for us to kind of be mindful and own it. Some of those biases, unfortunately, seep over into our practices of our everyday lives. And so, you know, when you talk about those studies that are really um, concerning that in 2016, 40% of medical students believed black patients felt less pain than white patients, that we had less sensitive, uh, you know, nerve endings. Where is that coming from? And, And that's where we have to look at the curriculum of medical school and nursing. It's, it's all facets of the healthcare system where we have the opportunity to educate and also just be open that there are these biases. And that's when you get that kind of opportunity to change it. Because once you acknowledge it, that's the first step. Then you are open to, oh my goodness, you know, maybe I do have some biases that this person may not feel as much pain or this person doesn't display a, a, a form of um, discomfort or being ill based on my perception or my thoughts. And that's, that's giving true care because then you're able to just focus on the patient. 
and really hear them and listen to them, which in turn, you can give full encompassing care. And that's what we have to think about is our educational systems, as well as our current practices and, and finding ways to discuss this, because that's, that's another way to kind of just, hmm, I need to take a second to look at how I'm practicing. But I, I look at it through all systems, whether it's laboratories, it's hospital systems, clinics, our government, everyone has, the, uh, has accountability in this. Mm-hmm. Another concern, I think, for disparate health outcomes is trust in the system. So like we've just spent the last 15 minutes talking about all the ways that our medical systems have failed people of color. And that's not new. That's happened historically for a very long time. And that creates a barrier, too, is even if the medical system does get better at these diagnoses, these treatments, you need to have patients who trust in their doctors, who will go and see their doctors, who will take the medications they're prescribed, all of those kind of things. Like trust is a big element. And there is a lot of mistrust among various minority communities. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think the example that most people are familiar with is the Tuskegee experiment. And then we have vaccine hesitation. And I think there's some some real connection between the really abuses of people of color in the medical world. And that lingers on, you know, decades and decades and decades later. Can you talk a little bit about what what the Tuskegee experiment was and how you think things like that have carried forward all the way to today? You know, um, and and you are correct. The Tuskegee syphilis study, that's where most people lean into and remember. But there's a lot of people who don't have any idea about what happened to these black men. And so when we think about the syphilis study where you had a group of men, black men who thought they were helping the government understand syphilis and in turn, unfortunately, were used as a form of study to learn more about a terrible disease. And it's important to mention that, you know, penicillin was available (laughs) and and they didn't give it to them. And so that is just one of many examples of why there are so many different communities of color, people of color who don't trust the healthcare system. And so whether it's sterilization, whether it's, you know, access or just clinical trials, there is so many forms of mistrust that has unfortunately impacted people of color. And that has. And and people often wonder, well, why wouldn't they want to just take a vaccine? Or why wouldn't they just want to come in and have a screening? Well, those stories of the things that have happened have been delivered through generations. And those generations are still carrying that mistrust. And another form, when we talk about being solution-oriented, What are we doing to go into these communities and really share this information in a trusted format so we can help break down those barriers or really discuss the mistrust that is happening? And so when COVID-19 happened and there was this kind of, oh, come and get tested or get vaccinated, a lot of my patients and even in my family members were like, no way am I going to do that. I'm not going to trust the government. And and I share how my dad, he, quote, said, I'm not going to be one of their guinea pigs. It's interesting because I grew up hearing that mistrust. And that speaks to that generational. I don't know if I wasn't a doctor, if I would have, you know, had the same 
level of trust, I still would have been advocating. Now that piece wouldn't have gone away because that's part of me, but trust in the, the government and the healthcare system. And so that's where we have to think about how can we have webinars? How can we have in-person talks um, where people can just ask questions? and find out more about whatever healthcare topic is important to them and utilize trusted messengers and representation is key. In Northern Nevada, we are not rich in diversity. We do not have, and I won't give the exact number, but I can tell you that number is quite low in, as far as black physicians in Northern Nevada. And that makes a difference. Because when you have someone that looks like you, that you, that you just have this automatic kind of understanding, it really creates a level of just trust. And I often share when I have a child of color and I say, you know, I'm Dr. BC, I'm, I'm Dr. Curry Winchell, how can I help you? They light up. And I, I can't tell you how many times little ones have said, are you really a doctor or even their parents? And I say, yes, I am. And you can feel <laughs> this connection before I even say anything else. And that's what we need more across the world. We need to have more people of color as physicians. The ability to press and, and share their stories of resistance and concern and mistrust to healthcare organizations. So there's a deeper understanding of what that patient is going through. And without that, mm -hmm. you're missing that piece because that's how you're going to give full care. You need to have that to really give a true robust form of healthcare. Yeah. Do you think that the um, the role of Black physicians is kind of two parts of both communicating with the patients, the medical information that those patients need to hear? But it sounds like a part of it also is the medical establishments need to hear from Black doctors as well, because they might not take the Black patients as seriously. But when they have a doctor who is you know, telling them about what they're doing wrong. Do you find that that's kind of an important role for you in particular as, you know, a, a black doctor in this area where there's not a lot to have a lot of influence, not just on your patients, but on the organizations and uh, medical practices that you work with? It is. And it's something that I am so grateful for the opportunity to help. Now, when I say grateful for it, I am to help, but that doesn't mean that we should only lean on one person or two people or three people <laughs> in Northern Nevada. And we need to have more, more doctors of color here in this community so they can help share that message. You know, I talk about different healthcare systems. If you want to recruit more doctors of color, you can do that by diversifying your board of directors. You know, when you look at those pictures in your hallway, how many people of color and how many doctors of color do you have? And how many black doctors do you have? Because when people are coming to you, let's say Northern Nevada, they're looking at that. And it really provides a forecast to how diverse that healthcare system is what opportunities do I have to be able to move up or, or find ways to be a part of this healthcare system based on 
the decision makers that you currently have. And so that's an opportunity again to recruit and have more people come to Northern Nevada. And we need to do that because it, it can make a difference. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of obviously barriers for people at all levels of working in the medical field. In your own experience and career path, what kind of challenges or barriers uh, have you experienced as you're, you know, have moved through your career here in the Northern Nevada area? So, um, you know, I love this community and they have been so welcoming, but I appreciate this time to kind of unpack some of the things that I do carry as a black woman um, that are different than what others might experience. And so I first start with just being a woman. That part as being a mom, a, a woman, and in healthcare and being taken seriously. Because I remember even when I was studying um, in medical school, and someone would come up to me and say, Oh, you're, uh, what are you studying? And I would say, I'm going to be, a, you know, a doctor. And they would discount that completely. And and think I'm I'm going for a different profession. And every profession is important. It's not that. But you didn't hear me. You didn't see me in the profession that I'm at. And why? It's possible because there's not a level of imagery or representation that you have of me, my color, my gender as a doctor. Mm -hmm. And so that has been a barrier that I have, you know, had to deal with. And then being black, that intersectionality in itself is another piece. And, and it, it, it speaks to, again, could you consider that I could be a black doctor here and that I know what I'm doing, that I could be taken seriously as well? And the other piece is, you know, I, I shared with you, I'm extremely friendly and happy person, and it's just part of who I am. But I think, because I'm a woman, because I'm black, and I have this personality, which I, it's just a part of me, I think sometimes I'm not taken as seriously because of that. And I do wonder if I, you know, didn't have those other parts of me, but I was still happy, would I be taken more seriously? And you have to kind of think about is being black and a woman, I've already kind of have a disadvantage there. And then my personality, which shouldn't be like that, can also add to it. And so I've introduced myself, um, you know, hi, I'm Dr. Curry Winchell. And I've had patients say, oh, I'm waiting to talk to the doctor and not again, seeing me or hearing what I do. I think of even in my marriage, like my husband, they hear, oh, there's a doctor in the family. They think it's him. <laughs> They don't right. ask and open, you know, who is it? Um, there's just automatic that it must be him. And so those are some of the barriers and challenges, as well as the ability to share inequities and disparities and understand that that is real work, that there is value in that. That's a challenge that I am going to continue to take on because it's so important to me that I try my best to represent people of color, my patients, and how they deserve to have the same access, the same, you know, form of literacy, but not just the same form, but an intentional form of health literacy that includes their concerns, their mistrust. And so those are some of the things that I, I face on a daily basis. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the personality and communication style thing, I think, is kind of interesting because I'm sure that in dealing with your patients, being friendly and likable and fun and uh, having a little bit of bubbliness, I imagine that's good bedside manner. That is, that's earning trust. You're talking about trusted messengers. And I think a doctor who is, you know, friendly and relatable is probably a doctor who's going to get their message across much more easily. And then I'm also curious as you do, you know, media appearances and things like that, the friendliness and relatability seems like a real asset too. And I mean, this is not just around the medical field, but there's a lot of kind of like stereotypical ideas about how black women in particular present themselves. Like we see that in the media. That's a well-known challenge, I think, for black women. So I'm curious kind of how how all of that factors in. If you could just talk a little bit more kind of about the like the personality and presentation stuff, because I think that is, it's interesting. And I think it's probably an important piece of this. So I'm glad, so glad you asked that. So when it comes to patient facing, that's my jam. I love seeing patients <laughs> and <laughs> I am so thankful for the positive comments um, that I have received because I always share, I love being a doctor. I love seeing patients and I find it so rewarding to be able to be in the clinic see someone and try to help them in any way that I can. It brings me so much joy. It's interesting because on the flip side, when it comes to administration, when it comes to those board meetings and those other factors, that's the part where that personality sometimes isn't always taken as seriously. And so again, you kind of are taken in differently (laughs) Although you're the same person. And so as I'm writing policies or trying to get different initiatives through, as I enter a room and my colleague is called, you know, Dr. This, and I'm referred to as bio from the get-go, that makes it really hard to be on equal playing ground, even from the start, from that administrative hat. But from a national, like, publications and writing. I love when I get to write because, you know, you you don't necessarily see my color. Um, mm-hmm. But what I do, so you do see it because it's a part of me, is I intentionally add things that I know are important for people of color. And so, for example, when I talk about hypertension and diabetes, I use that as an opportunity to share. You don't have an increased risk of having hypertension and diabetes because you're black. That's not it. It's about access. It's about information, medication earlier on. And often you see there's this notion that you're African-American, you are at a higher risk of having diabetes and hypertension. But I use my platform to try to talk about not because you're black. That's not why. It's other factors. And so that has been just, you know, a wonderful thing that I'm trying my best to just kind of continue that that narrative. And when it comes to television, there isn't. <laughs> a lot of black medical uh, media contributors or health literacy communicators. And I'm going to share something with you, which has always been something that I've thought about In this space and also in other spaces, it sometimes feels like there can only be one or two that we can have on that national or that that scale. And I think when you look at different organizations, different companies, and you look at that, there tends to be just one. And we need to have more of that out there. And so the television part has just been wonderful. And I use it as a form of representation because I want 
people of color to hear this information from a black doctor in hopes that it helps them, number one. And then I hope there's a level of representation where, oh, if I'm thinking about being in a healthcare, I can do it. Or if, oh, she talked about mammograms, she talked about this, I need to ask my doctor about this, you know, and so forth. So that's what I've tried to use my 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 opportunities. And I love providing health information in a digestible way. I have had this opportunity to learn all of this great information. And so I love that I can try to shape it in a way. And again, it's just shaping it so it can be delivered, but not for decision-making to make a certain you know specific outcome, but finding ways that people can understand it. I love that kind of challenge of, okay, I know this very complicated piece in health. How can I share it where anybody could understand it? So they can feel like, okay, I know what this means. Or when my doctor mentioned this, I had no idea what they were talking about, but I heard Dr. Curry Winchell say this and now I understand. Um, and And that's been another piece of why I do this. It's just overall, everyone's heard me say this, but it's how I feel. I love helping. I love <laughs> giving back. Mm-hmm. So that's what I that's how I do it. I love that. Yeah. As far as the representation in the medical field, I know there's barriers to people getting into the medical field from the first place, getting into medical school. All of this starts very early in the process. So we can say, oh, we want more representation. What are the kind of like specific barriers or who has their hand on the levers that can make these changes? moving moving people along in the process, get letting people who aren't getting promoted get promoted into more important roles, those kind of things. There's barriers the entire way through. So where do you think the focus could or should be? So when I think about this, and especially within healthcare, I think it needs to start from the beginning. So elementary schools, preschools, middle schools, having the opportunity for doctors or healthcare providers to be in the schools. And how can we do that? Different healthcare systems, send your doctors over there. Let kids, you know, see doctors of color and know that it's a possibility, like planting that seed, I think is so important. That can lead to when they get older in high school and so forth, the opportunity to have mentorships, sponsorships, that helps you kind of navigate this journey of how do you get through medical school? How do you apply? Do you need help, financial help, or even just applying? And so what can we do? We can invest in having doctors of color, whether it's your organization, whether it's the government, put them in schools, allow also the opportunity for kids to shadow in your healthcare systems so they can see it or get a flavor of what it's about. That is how we're going to move the needle and increase representation in our healthcare systems. And then once you do have them, find out what things that they're actually interested in. Really embrace those doctors that are thinking out of the box and trying to deliver healthcare, or if it's a different you know, type of um, workforce, what, what can you do to help foster that? When we think of innovation, diversity breeds innovation. And so 
when you do that and you diversify your workforce and you look at those that may not fit mainstream and maybe out of the box, that's a very tangible way of doing it. You just have to be intentional and just move forward with it. We talked a little bit about the disparate outcomes for people of color that are based on different treatments, different diagnoses based on race. But is part of this also, and you mentioned kind of a lot of things that are broken in our healthcare system, but is part of it just having a broad conversation about healthcare access in general? Outcomes are based not on race, but they're based on, like you said, access. And a lot of that is based on wealth inequality. So we're seeing it as, oh, this is a racial issue, but actually it's an economic issue. So do you think that reforms more broadly to our healthcare system are a good way to look at addressing some of the racial issues as well, like not through necessarily the racial lens, but you know, having broader solutions that in turn have a positive racial impact. Is that something that you think is a good place for us to focus? I do. You know, when you look at those inequalities, whether it's social economic, other financial pieces, having the playing ground equal can make a difference. And so when you speak of access, yes, you can have a great location we talked about or, you know, come into our building and so forth. But if they can't get there because they don't have the funds to actually make it there, or they can't pay their copay, or they can't afford their medication, or they can't go to that screening, then we haven't really found a way to improve all parts of the healthcare system. And once they do get in there, we have to educate our healthcare providers on asking more about, so I'm going to prescribe this medication. I would love to know more about, you know, what challenges do you have in your daily life? And that question can lead to, you know what, I'm struggling financially. I'm having a hard time going grocery shopping. I, I don't have the funds. Because when you do that, that can change the direction of what type of care you're going to give. You can give this prescription, but if they don't have the funds to pay for it or they can't get to the pharmacy, you're not helping. That is an equality right there that we have to look at because it's those layers that make up our patients. Mm-hmm. What do you see as kind of the positive in recent years? So you've been with St. Mary's for a long time. Are you seeing positive results? Are there things that are happening in St. Mary's or with other you know organizations that you've worked with that you're excited about that you've seen good progress in in recent years? I have. And <laughs> so, you know, the one part that I am grateful for St. Mary's Carbon Health and the Community Advocacy Center, the opportunity to just discuss and bring up different inequities and disparities and have conversations and how we can meet people where they are and what things we can do to change how we deliver healthcare. And so there's a lot of work left to do (laughs) that we need to focus on. But I think the first step is being open 
to having the discussion and saying, you know what, there are things that we could do better. And I think that's where every healthcare system can take an example or take a lesson from. Once you do that, that's when the work can start and you can start making some headway on delivering healthcare in in different ways. I know we're running a little long on time, but I do want to ask you about a couple current medical things since I have an experienced doctor on the on the <laughs> line. And I know we're still we're still talking about things like COVID is not gone. And now there's uh, big fears of monkeypox also having kind of pandemic potential. So to start, we'll keep this part a little bit briefer than the rest, of course. But can you just talk a little bit about the current state of the COVID situation? I think a lot of people psychologically feel like COVID is over, but I think the death rates are still happening. I think that COVID is likely to continue to be like the, I think, third highest cause of death in the country, something like that. It is still very, very significant. So can you talk a little bit about what's going on with COVID, both in the the public perception of it, and then also what you're seeing in the hospitals and what you're seeing as the real impacts that are still going on? Yes. So COVID is still here um, and it has now turned into what we like to say endemic. So meaning we are going to just live with this virus. And that being said, it's still here and it's still infecting people. And it's important to remember that although now it's been two and a half years, people are still dying from this disease. People are still unfortunately, suffering from complications from this disease that have been long lasting. And so, you know, one thing that we have to continue to invest in is providing that information about ways to get tested or find ways to get the care if you were under the weather, making sure that people know where to go and being thoughtful that even if someone isn't vaccinated, that we are still here for you (laughs) and we're going to still provide the health information for you. And of course, you know, vaccinations are here and they have been such an amazing tool in fighting this disease where our numbers now are not where they were before. And that's because we have vaccines. And I always like to share, you know, when you look at that history with uh, with vaccines, that's the reason why we don't have specific diseases that are still prevalent. It's because mm-hmm. of vaccines. And so we are in a much better place now because we have something, but we still have to keep our eye on the fact that, you know, there's COVID, there's flu, there's so many other diseases that can cause harm. And we have to continue to provide health information in the same way. And I say this delicately in the same way that we were very resourceful and trying to give this information to the public. We need to do that for all diseases. You should have the right to know about public health and the information to help keep you and your family and your friends safe from certain viruses and diseases. And so that's something that we have to continue to do. And, you know, the current state of monkeypox now, unfortunately, is here. And I like to share that monkeypox can infect anyone. And one thing that I'm really concerned about, as well as other providers, this stigma that is unfortunate that has resurfaced 
from before. And this notion that you have to be gay or having sex with men to get this disease. And so I like to share the virus is not discriminatory. It can infect anyone. And it's important that we understand that and not put a stigma like we've seen in the past when I think of HIV and other things that we lean into accurate, credible information and we continue to fight disinformation because Mm -hmm. that's how we're going to help people so they can be informed. We have to keep that momentum and that drive as we did with COVID-19. This needs to happen and we need to look at how we are delivering health information and just say, you know, we're not doing it right and find different ways to do it better. And again, that Mm -hmm. goes back to what I said before, Connor, what are we doing? Are we doing it the right way? Should we still be doing this? And how is it affecting health outcomes? We have to continue that. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the cultural and politicization of health issues is a serious problem? Because I get the sense that when we're getting our health information from Twitter or from, you know, people who have a political agenda or people who are afraid that someone has a political agenda or any of these things that are less about the actual medical provider telling information to a patient and more about the general cultural understanding of what these diseases are and how they work and what doesn't work and all of those things. Is that a concern for you that the way we communicate now can undermine the work you're trying to do in terms of providing accurate information? And how do you think we should be combating that or addressing it? Well, it's interesting because, you know, I love social media in respect to getting the word out and and helping to amplify accurate, credible information. Mm-hmm. But it has also hampered our ability to provide accurate information in a continuous motion because you constantly have disinformation coming at the same time as you're trying to promote or provide accurate information. And when you look at politics, getting involved in science, that should never be a part of it. It should be separate. That I think is something that I have really leaned into as far as, you know, I am just here to talk about the science. That's it. I just want to inform my patients. I want to share what I know and try to give the best care possible. And it's unfortunate that we now have this lens of politics into healthcare, which we've never seen it to this great extent before. And the problem with that is it's affecting people's lives. That is where we have to take a step back and really look at how we can continue to fight this and put true effort behind it. It's not, okay, well, that person is sharing misinformation. No, we really need to find ways to debunk it, but also stop it in its tracks because it is hurtful and it's harmful to everyone. Yeah, I think we've seen that recently, especially with COVID where you know, we've always had political misinformation and there's always, you know, politics has never been a particularly honest world, I don't think. But I think that with COVID, we're seeing kind of the direct impact to people's lives, right? Like whether you live or die. And I think that the kind of politicization of this medical stuff 
has really shown a light on the immediate power of disinformation to kill people. And I've got an extra, you know, thought on that. What COVID-19 has done as far as the impact for healthcare providers, those that were trying to debunk the misinformation who have been attacked verbally, you know, physically. And Mm -hmm. I like to share, you have people that already before in Nevada, we, our workforce was already, you know, um, we needed more doctors and nurses already in our state and nationwide, of course we need it. But now after that, and there was already a level of feeling, you know, burnt out by so many healthcare providers. You have people leaving healthcare in droves where it's hard to now, you know, staff clinics or hospitals and so forth. So those attacks, those verbal attacks have now seeped into our infrastructure. And so a year, two years, five years from now, how is that going to impact care? You need those physicians and nurses and so forth there to take care of you. These are the same people that you are attacking. And I always, one example, it's, you know, I've always been in this, like I said, with, you know, different advocacy and so forth. But with COVID-19, the personal attacks that even I received, you wonder about those who have just said, you know, I'm just not going to do it anymore. Or... For me personally, it's been interesting because it's like, you trust me if you come in and you have a heart attack or you have this, you know I'm going to help you. You know that. But if I say that you have COVID, you don't believe me. So where has that separation of now I do know what I'm talking about versus I don't Mm -hmm. based on a diagnosis and how politics and other factors have unfortunately diluted that level of trust and knowledge in the healthcare system. And so I do worry that there are some people who were interested in becoming physicians or nurses who now are like, nope, I'm not going to do it because of this. So we have to look at it, you know, at as a whole and, and also find ways to support those who are still out there trying to advocate. And so I, I like to lift the curtain even for myself that, you know, I am first and foremost, a mom of two little girls that are my world. And that comes first. And when I would share health information, and sometimes that information was about my kiddos and what I believe is safe for them, the attacks that would happen were, I can't believe you, you know, gave the vaccine or did this for your children. How dare you? And it's like, that's my heart. And so I believe in this and I would never harm my children. But a lot of times people don't take you in for all of those pieces that you are. And that helps shape who I am and how I deliver care and what I believe in. So I'm a mom, a wife, and a doctor, all three of those things. And and then the intersectionality of a Black physician, um, Black female physician. And those are all, you know, a part of me. And I, and I share it openly in hopes of giving as much as I possibly can each day. Excellent. Uh, where can people learn more about public health, about COVID, basically, and continue learning? That's the real question. As I always ask people, where can people learn more? And they say, oh, well, here's this one website. Here's this one thing. But for you, I guess my question is more, how can people continue to stay informed about how to take care of themselves, about public health? That's a big focus for you is this health education and health literacy. So not just in the you know, one piece of information way, but how can people 
have a practice or a routine or a just general longer term understanding of health and how we take care of ourselves? I think the first thing is, you know, looking into finding that trusted healthcare provider and do your due diligence, just like you would do with anything that's important, that's a part of your life and find out where they're pulling their information from. Is the study an accurate study? Is it actually a study? And then once you have kind of vetted that piece, start, you know, following them or following the sites that they recommend. Like I'm a big believer in public health websites because I feel like there's no secondary gain. And so using that information can be very helpful. And also think about whether it's writings or websites or talking to people or organizing webinars. I think that is another piece of information that is out there for people. And I share, I I love discussing health literacy and there's so many people in Nevada and nationwide that are promoting great health information. So, you know, find that good fit for you and someone that you feel is credible and then ask around because we all can get into this rabbit hole of thinking that this person is the right person and is, is just. So, just like you would, you know, seek a second opinion, ask others. And one thing, this is kind of um, non-traditional that people are always surprised. Think about asking someone who may not think the same way as you to look at this person and see what dialogue and conversation can come from that. Because that can also be a way to authenticate or look at is this person really providing credible information? So I think when we open ourselves up to looking even from the opposite side, but also having a healthy discussion and then finding that person that is continually sharing credible information that doesn't have a secondary gain, that's that's how you can continue to keep yourself informed. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. BCW. Really, really appreciated the opportunity to talk to you. Like I said, I think that having this solution mindset is really important. And that is the common thread among everything that I've seen from you is it's all about getting the right results and actually having an impact. So I'm so glad that we were able to sit down and have a a full conversation about all of the work you're doing, because I think it's really, really important. And I'm so grateful to have you here in Northern Nevada. You know, I, I love Reno. And one of the things that I really love about this show is getting to talk to people who are having a real impact in our area. So thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk to me and to our listeners. You know, I think information is so important, as you've said, and uh, I'm proud also to be hopefully a part of that, you know, helpful, informative, educational ecosystem that we are all building collectively. You are. And this has been just lovely. <laughs> so thank you for the opportunity um, to be on the show and to just share information. Um, I, I, I'm filled with gratitude to do this. So thank you. And you are helping the community as a native Nevadan. I am so happy that this is here. And it's an, a wonderful resource for our community. Listeners, thank you so much for checking out this week's episode of Renoite and Extra special thanks to my guest, Dr. Bio Curry Winchell. Dr. BCW, thank you so much for coming on the show. Such a great conversation about such an important issue, and I'm very glad to have been able to share it with our audience here on Renoites. 
Again, if you have any suggestions for future guests, future episodes, please let me know. It's Connor, C-O-N-O-R at arenawhites.com. And don't forget to check out that Patreon if you want to continue for this show to exist. If you want to help support financially, it's patreon.com slash arenawhites. This episode was produced by myself and my co-producer this season, Lynn Lazaro. And that's all we've got for you this week. 